This morning is our eighth sermon in this series, and the title of my message this morning is Overcoming the Sin of Partiality. Overcoming the Sin of Partiality. Last week, we got into Acts chapter 10, and we we met a Roman soldier, to kind of jog your memory, his name's Cornelius. He had left the paganism of his upbringing, and he had begun to worship the Jewish God, Yahweh, and and was called a God-fearer. And in the text where we met Cornelius, an angel of the Lord actually shows up to this man and says that God has seen his worship and wants him to send for a man named Peter, who's over in the town of Joppa, and to listen to what it is that Peter has to tell him. So Cornelius, like I said, he's a a Roman soldier. He's a good Roman soldier. He's part of an elite group of soldiers, and he's one who understands what you do when someone with authority tells you to do something. He obeys. (laughs) He obeys. He did exactly as he was commanded. He sent men to go find this Simon Peter over in Joppa. And and Peter, as we talked about last week, Peter's there in Joppa, still kind of growing in his understanding of what God is actually doing in the world. And that the mission of the church, of which Peter's a part, Peter's actually a leader of, that the mission of God for the church in this world is to reach the world. All nations and tribes and languages not just the Jewish people who had been spread out into all the different nations because of exiles and because of wars and because of captivities, they're actually to go reach those people, the people from the other nations, the other language, the other tribes. And Peter still hasn't quite grasped this at this point because in his heart, as we talked about last week, in his heart, Peter is still struggling with the sins of partiality, pride, and traditionalism. Partiality is the belief that that some people are better than other people, and thus you treat the people who are better better than you treat the people who are worse, right? So you begin to treat people differently based on how you perceive them to be. In religious terms, Peter is used to thinking of some people in this category as being clean and worthy, and then there's this other group of people who are unclean and, and unworthy. And The pride that Peter has is, of course, seen in the fact that he thinks he's in this clean and worthy group. And everybody who's different than him, well, they must be in the other group. They're unclean. They're unworthy, right? If they don't share his background, his worldview, his approach to things, then they're in the other group. And people like him, they're the ones that surely God loves. And, of course, it makes sense that God would would save us. Because for Peter, so much of his life is bound up in his traditionalism. He was raised a certain way. He thought about things from a certain perspective. He did things in this familiar way. And everyone else who had a different background, a different tradition, a different approach to things, well, Peter was still, if he was honest, pretty uncomfortable. Pretty uncomfortable. So as we talked about last week at length, the reality is we are just like Peter in this. We can get really, really hung up sometimes on our traditions. And when our traditions get placed too high in our hearts, when it becomes too important to us, then the result is we often miss the opportunities to grow ourselves and the call of God to further the mission that he has given to us in this world. 
So God is going to press right in on these fundamental issues of partiality and pride and traditionalism in Peter here in Acts 10. And the way he begins to do that is through a vision of animals. Remember this, this incredibly interesting vision that Peter has of, of the sheep being lowered from heaven. There's all these animals upon it. And the reason God used that vision is because it touched upon the, the central part of Peter's pride and traditionalism regarding kosher foods. It was tradition that Peter had been raised with and not had just been raised with, but he was, he was comfortable with. He was good at following that set of rules. But God, in this vision, tells Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And those words are going to have a profound impact upon Peter, and as a result, an impact that echoes down throughout the ages to you and I here today. Peter, whose whole worldview and traditionalism is being confronted in Acts chapter 10, is a bit slow to understand the full meaning of those words from God. The text tells us he's inwardly perplexed, and he's pondering the meaning of the vision. He's trying to figure out what it is God's saying, and what does that mean for, for him when God tells him, I want you to go down right now, Peter, from where you're praying, and I want you to go greet these three men who I have sent. I want you to listen to them and then go with them where they ask you to go. And so that's where we ended in the text last week. Peter obeys that command of God, goes down, meets these three men, agrees he will go with them. And the very next morning, they rise up and they head back to, uh, to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, which is about 30 miles north of where they are in Joppa. And so we're going to pick up in the text today in Acts chapter 10, verse 24, if you're there in the Bible. We're going to read these first two verses. Now, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now, I want us to stop here for just a second because I think this is a moment that we can, we can fairly quickly brush by as we're reading this whole narrative. We want to get to kind of what Peter has to say and then what God does towards the end of the chapter. But I think this is actually an incredibly important moment for Peter right here. As we talked about who Cornelius was, his upbringing, his background, his position, he was a man who understood honor. He was the recipient of great honor, right? He was a commander of soldiers. He was an elite soldier himself. He was of noble heritage. He was a Roman uh, by birth. This was a man who was used to receiving honor, but despite being so prestigious himself, he takes this time, this opportunity to show great respect to Peter. I believe this act on the part of Cornelius was one of humility and sincerity. He, I think, really believes that this man whom God has sent to him from this other town through an angelic vision, this man is surely worthy of being honored. And I think it's probably likely due to Cornelius' own background, the paganism of his upbringing, the fact that he was part of the, the Roman religion before he had converted to being a God-fearer. He thinks, well, well, this person must be worthy of honor and, and perhaps even worthy of worship. Right? They, the Roman citizens were being developed this time to think of the emperor himself, this human being ruling over them, as a god who deserved worship. And I think that's probably what's coming out here is a little bit of confusion in the part of Cornelius, but coming from the right motivation. This is a man who surely deserves honor. Here's the greatest way I know to honor him. He begins to worship Peter. But I think it's partly this action that God uses to wake Peter up to what it is he's really trying to teach Peter through all this. I say that because when Peter sees this worship of him, when he recognizes what's happening as Cornelius begins to worship him, he realizes he is not worthy of that at all. Peter experiences this moment of clarity and light that penetrates his soul, exposes and destroys 
the secret beliefs that pride and partiality produce. The sin of partiality that was rooted in Peter's heart produces secret thoughts that you and I sometimes have in our own hearts too. They're hidden away in those darker recesses of our minds and we're comfortable with them as long as they remain hidden and internal, never really vocalized or expressed externally. It's this thought. And perhaps you can identify this thought that's been in your mind and maybe you can relate to this. That little thought that's somewhere in there saying, I am better than someone else. I am a little bit more worthy than they are. You know, I do, I do better. My actions are superior. You know, I really, I kind of am the main character here of, of this whole story that's unfolding. I, I'm, I'm really at the center of things. About time they recognize that. I kind of rank a little bit above whoever else is around me. Peter has all those little thoughts running around in the dark corners of his heart, just like so many of us do still today. But it's through this external encounter as a Gentile bows down in worship of him that Peter suddenly realizes just how terrible, how ugly, how unrighteous, and how wrong those secret little thoughts truly are. When faced with being made the object of worship explicitly, the reality of Peter's humanity, the equal unworthiness of his life compared to every other person around him, struck Peter profoundly. So Peter responds in verse 26 by lifting him up and saying, stand up, I too am a man. Better, I too am just a man. I'm not worthy of worship. As much as our hearts internally may try to convince us that we are, when Peter sees that played out as Cornelius bows before him, he says, no, <laughs> I'm really not. That's not right. Worship belongs to God alone, and I, I am just a man. So God uses this moment to reinforce this simple but really important truth in Peter's mind. He's telling Peter, no matter his background, no matter his traditions, no matter what amazing things God has done through Peter. I mean, remember, he had just recently healed a man who had been sick for eight years. He'd even been part of raising Tabitha from the dead, right? But nothing makes Peter anything more in himself than a common, sinful, unworthy, on his own merit man. And Peter articulates that to Cornelius as he refuses to accept this worship which he realizes does not belong to him. So then we read in verses 27 to 29. And as Peter talked with Cornelius, he went in and found many persons gathered. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? See, at this point, I think Peter's beginning to understand what it is that God's been trying to teach Peter through all of this leading up to this. Peter realizes that pride in traditions and the partiality that was in his heart were not in line with what God was calling him and the church to be and do. The sin of partiality was exposed and overcome in Peter so he says he now understands there's no person, no matter their background, no matter their mistakes, no matter what they've done, who should be viewed as common or unclean or unworthy. 
what God has called clean, he has no right to say anything different to. But this is not all that God has intended to do here in this narrative that we're reading about in Acts 10. So we read now of Cornelius speaking up in the next few verses. Look at verse 30. So Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this very hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I really love these two things that Cornelius says in his reply to Peter. What I want us to to focus in on in this text. First, Cornelius simply states the reality of what it is he did because, like I said, he was a soldier by his experience who understood how to respond to authority. He understood submission to an authority a lot better than many of us do today. Right? Cornelius was given a command, told what to do by God, and what's he do? He does it. And not just does it, but he even notes he does it at once. See, Cornelius understood that delayed obedience is actually an act of disobedience. Delayed obedience is actually an act of disobedience. Cornelius was shaped to understand this in his life as a soldier. When he was told, this is what you must do, go this direction, take this action, he had to do it, not at some point, but right then. He had learned this lesson as a soldier. That's why he's still alive as a soldier. (laughs) And as a commander, this is exactly what he expected of those he was in charge of, right? When he gave an order, he expected it to be fulfilled right then, as he said it, at once. Hearing a command... And then considering it, thinking about it, pondering it for a while, trying to decide if we like it, do I really agree with it, is that something I really want to do, that's not obedience to the command. And all the mothers in the room say, amen, bring the kids back in here, pastor, just camp out on that point for a while. But this is more than just a lesson kids need to learn, isn't it? Because when it comes to our lives and the commands that God has for us, I mean, let's, let's just be, be blunt, be honest in this place. We don't always obey God's commands immediately like we ought to, do we? So if we're direct and we apply it to our own hearts, hear this today. It's not glorifying to God for you to think about his commands but not obey them. In fact, it's an act of sin and rebellion to think about what God has to say, to know what God has said, but not to do it. And many of us are sinful and rebellious to God in our lives in this very way. Because we are told things as Christians. We are given commands by God to do not just a few things, great number of things that you and I often don't respond immediately to in obedience of him. Just a few examples. God's very clear in the scriptures that you and I are called to be missional, to make disciples wherever we go with whoever God has put into our life. We've talked about this probably countless times since I have been your pastor here. But a lot of us don't take that command very seriously, do we? And if we take it seriously, how many of us take it seriously enough to do it immediately when we have the opportunity? 
a lot of us are kind of slow. You know, maybe we'll get around to it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell them about Jesus. Just got to build some relationship for 5, 10, 15 years. <laughs> right? God's people are also commanded in our relationships with one another with a lot of commands throughout the New Testament. We did a whole series on this last, last fall, right? And spent a lot of time looking at what God has to say about our one another relationships, how we're to know one another and commit to one another and grow with one another and love one another. And then some tangible things that looks like that are really difficult, really uncomfortable, is that we're to be pursuing reconciliation when relationships fracture. And we're to strive to actually be at peace with one another. But a lot of people find it easier to, to run away, to go hide in sin, to go flee into the darkness, and just flatly disobey God's commands about how we are to relate to one another, don't we? We're commanded repeatedly in Scripture to put to death our own sins, to mortify things that would dishonor God, things that would distract us from Him, things that would keep us from open and honest worship of Him. And we're told equally to pursue and come alive in the things of God, bearing specific righteous fruit in our lives. And yet many of us, what do we do is we try to go and tame our sins instead of bury them. We try to make them pets on a leash instead of something that we kill. We hope to control them. And so we don't produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because those pet sins that we're keeping around, they're going around choking out and destroying everything that would grow if it wasn't there. And as I say, and I quote from, from 2 Peter 3.18 all the time, you and I, we're, we're given a direct command in the scripture to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And God would tell us, using other examples, that we're to be people who move from having spiritual milk to, to meat, from being infants in the faith to mature men and women of God, to have that kind of growth going on in our lives. But so many of us, we don't read the word of God devotedly. We don't pray regularly as he invites us to do. We don't practice the spiritual disciplines that he's given us as the means of grace and growth, and we don't engage fully in the ministries of the church where God has put us by his divine hand. We're not obeying God in these ways. And we could go on and on with different examples, but I'm praying that the Holy Spirit today would bring to mind for you the most personal and the most true of you individually things in which you are not obeying God. He would convict, he would, he would lead you to see how, how devastating and, and bad that is for your own sake, how he has so much better for you, and that today you'll be able to respond to that and find forgiveness for those mistakes from this loving God whom we serve. So turning back to Acts 10, Cornelius sets a positive example for us in what he says and in how he immediately obeys the command of God. And I believe that he did so because he recognized something in what he said at the very end of that sentence to Peter. He recognized this truth. We always live our lives in the presence of God. That's what he says in verse 33. He recognizes as Peter's there, his whole household's there, they are in the presence of God. And they're not in a church service. They didn't go over to the temple. They're there in Cornelius' house and he recognizes God is here, right now with us. Cornelius recognizes this reality that the Bible makes so plain to us. It's hard to read through the, the Psalms just for one example and not come away understanding this truth. God is aware of us. He sees us. He hears us. He knows our thoughts constantly. 
There's never a moment that you and I are not in the presence of God. There's never a time when you are hidden from his knowledge or his view. There's nowhere you can go. There's no place you can be. There's no time of day where he is not aware of you. The old Latin phrase that was often said is that we live quorum Deo, which literally means before the face of God. It was said to people throughout the ages to remind them of the reality that it says if your life is being played out right before the very, he's watching you, he's hearing you, he's seeing everything about you. A more modern example would be to think of how, how it is what takes place on a TV is, is where. It's right before your face, right? This is what it is for God. He sees it all. He hears it all in your life. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. As I thought about that this week, I prayed through that this week, the fact that God witnesses our hesitations to obey him. He sees our secret vices and sins. He knows our inward thoughts, the ones we don't even want to articulate to someone else, the ones we don't even want to dwell on ourselves. He's aware of what our heart is doing, where our our hearts are engaged, what they're longing for, where our focus is. At every moment in time, we are constantly living our lives fully Coram Deo, before the face of God. I mean, that should cause us to be pretty motivated with our lives, right? To be pretty intentional, pretty careful with how we live, right? The holy God sees and hears and knows everything. You're never hiding anything from him. That's a serious and sobering thought. God isn't just checking in on Sunday mornings about this time to make sure you're in church. He's watching everything, every moment of your life, Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday to Saturday to the next Sunday. But I want us to understand this morning that that is really good news at the same time that it's really sobering news. Because if everything in our lives is before the face of God, it means that he's with us in difficulties and hardships as well. When we're struggling with our health, when life is feeling overwhelming and complex and too much for us, God's there. He sees it. He knows your needs. When we face the loss of a loved one, when we're in those moments of grief and loneliness, he's there. He's with us. He sees us. He's not waiting for you to get your act together and then he'll turn his gaze back. He sees you right where you are. He's always present. We're always before his face. His his love is always fixed upon his people. He's never far. What a reality that is to recognize. And Cornelius somehow understands it. So he speaks of it to Peter. He knows we right now in my home as we're gathered here, we're in the very presence of God, Peter. And so would you you do what Jesus has commanded you to do? Would you share with us what he has told you to go and share? And so Peter responds. He obeys what we call the, the great commission, right? And he begins to proclaim the message of the gospel to these people that are standing before him, eager to hear the words of the Lord. Look at verses 34 to 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter begins by telling of the ministry of Jesus, of talking about those great works that Jesus did that had spread. So even these Gentile people living in Caesarea had heard of the great works of Jesus. He begins there, but then he focuses in, in that message, on the central event of salvation, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, the victory of his resurrection from the dead that Peter himself was a witness of, right? And that last line is what God has opened Peter's eyes to finally, truly understand. The mission of God's people has always been what Jesus said to his disciples to go and do at his ascension. They were to be people who went and proclaimed the message and made disciples of peoples from all nations and people groups and languages. This gospel message of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, how he has made a way of salvation was to go in every age and every place to every people upon the earth. This message was not just for Peter and his friends. This message was for Cornelius and his household and all the others who would hear of it in the days to come. And Peter finally, finally gets it. He finally shares this message with these people that he was naturally not comfortable with, that he naturally wouldn't have gone into that home to share with them about. But Peter now sees this is what it means that God shows no partiality. Peter is a man of partiality. God is not. And so he understands then, if God shows no partiality, then truly in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. All the barriers, the background, the language, the skin color, none of it matters. Peter finally gets it. And understand, it's, it's not that these people are acceptable to God by their own merit or their own efforts or trying really hard because Cornelius here, he wasn't saved by those prayers and alms that he was offering, right? He needed this message of the gospel to come to him, for, for him to respond to the preaching of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so he could have salvation. He needed to know the good news of who Jesus is, what he had done, how he had died and rose from the dead because that's the only foundation for salvation, is the only way anyone moves from spiritual death to life. Cornelius needed to hear about Jesus because, as Peter says, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. But it's only those who believe in Jesus, who hear of his gospel, that can find this forgiveness. There's no other way to be saved. Peter can't come in and say, Cornelius, you're doing a great job, man. Hey, keep giving some more money. In fact, why don't you give me a little bit of money? God will bless you. 
save you. It's all good. He has to know the name of Jesus. And Peter's the one that God sent to proclaim it to Cornelius and to his household. This is incredible, the plan of God being worked out here and revealed in Acts chapter 10. And when we rightly understand it, I think we should see how God destroys the barriers that are so easily, so often erected by traditionalism and the partiality that's in people, that's in us. Because God shows just how equal everyone is before him, that they receive salvation by his grace alone in the name of Jesus Christ alone. It's all level before the cross. It's all the same. There's one way of salvation. And then God further drives the point home for Peter and the Jewish people who'd come with him. Look at the next four verses. So while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that means the the Jewish believers who came with Peter, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they then asked for him to remain some days. This is the great crescendo of God's work in destroying the ideas of partiality and the pride of thinking that some people are better than others. God pours out his Holy Spirit, not just on the Jewish people who are standing there in the room, but on the Gentile believers too just as he had done in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes uh, pastors and theologians will, will call this the second Pentecost. And unfortunately, some people will, will think, okay, well, if it's the second Pentecost and there's the first Pentecost, which is what we see in Acts chapter 2, well, well, the first Pentecost is kind of the primary one, the more important one, the greater event, and it needs this kind of constant, continual attention and priority. But actually, I think... As I've looked at this and studied this for, for years now, I think it's this second moment, this second Pentecost year, that's actually even more meaningful to your life and my life today than the first Pentecost was. The reason is, look at the recipients here. And look at what God is doing through this whole story that we've just walked through. Like I said, it's, it's the Gentiles here who are being saved, being brought into right relationship with God, through the work of Jesus Christ, being given the seal of the Holy Spirit upon them, being equipped to follow him, be made a witness for him, being brought fully into the church, being publicly identified as a follower of Jesus through baptism in water, which Peter points out, you, there's no reason now to, to separate. There's no reason to say, well, well, again, we've got kind of classes of Christians and, and the, the Jewish Christians, you get water baptism and full membership and you guys over here, you're like, you know, JV, we'll work up to it, you know, over here. He says, look, God has saved these people just as he saved us. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on these people just as he did with us. There's there's a level ground here. There's no room for partiality. There's no room for differences between us. It's the same salvation, the same Holy Spirit indwelling both, the same baptism to be given to both. So there's no room for partiality in the people of God. We are all equal before him. We are all only saved by his grace and his loving kindness. Like I said last week in passing, it's really good news what takes place in Acts chapter 10 because almost every one of us hearing this message are like Cornelius and his family. We're Gentiles by birth, not Jewish by descent. 
So, so Acts 10 is this amazing moment where we see God clearly, without any question, saying, everyone from any nation, any background, any language, no matter how mistakes you've made, no matter what color your skin is, all who believe in Jesus Christ and trust him will receive forgiveness for their sins. The invitation now goes out to everybody. Come. Come to me. This is incredible. The fact that God saves Cornelius, accepts Cornelius, empowers Cornelius with the gift of the Holy Spirit so that he too can now become a witness, a disciple maker, to take the message further to reach new nations and people groups and languages on earth. That's good news. That's empowering news. That's encouraging news for us today. So hear me, that the events of Acts 10 they should help us overcome partiality too. No matter what traditions we come from, no matter what experiences we've had, no matter what our backgrounds look like, none of us are better than anyone else. We're not more worthy, not more deserving. It's only by his kindness and grace. We're all just men, as Peter said. We don't deserve worship. We aren't superior to those who differ from us. Acts 10 should break down all those barriers in us. It should help us overcome all the sins of partiality and pride and traditionalism because God saves all who would trust in Jesus Christ. By believing in him, they receive forgiveness of their sins, no matter how great or how small, how many, how few. Full forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. Trust in him as the one who died, the one who raised from the dead to save people who believe in him. So worship team, if you'll, if you'll come now and prepare to lead us in our final moments of song this morning as we conclude this service, we're gonna, we're gonna take a few moments as we do at the end of every single service to, to have a time of open and honest evaluation to try and listen to the Holy Spirit convict us of, of what's going on in our hearts, maybe to expose some stuff that we're, we're trying to hide, we're trying to press down, we're trying to bury, we don't want to deal with it. But today, we have this opportunity in humility to, to repent of our sins, to be honest with them before God. And the incredible promise of the Scripture is that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, for those of us who trust Jesus, who believe in Jesus, there's no condemnation from God. You can't come to him and say, Lord, this is what I've done. This is how I messed up. This is how far I've run. This is, this is what all those things in the darkness and my sins are. And he goes, wow, I can't believe it, man. <laughs> Gotta make you, I'll make you pay for that. That's not what God does. He gives grace and forgiveness for all of it. It's all paid for by the blood of Christ. So he's here this morning, God himself present in this place. What a thought. And what we do in these next few moments is quorum Deo. It's, it's in his very view. He's watching, he's listening, he sees you. And so we have this opportunity to respond to him, to respond to his word, to respond to this message of his gospel, to come and put to death our sins and ask him to make us come alive in what it is that he has for us. 
Well, they're going to sing, and we're going to take a few times to, to pray. The altars are, are open, and, and as I've said every week, the altars are not just open for, for a big need. Like, you don't, you don't have to get to a certain threshold to come to the altar this morning. And if you come to the altar this morning, no one's thinking, wow, that's got to be a serious thing. No, they're open for, for every need, for any need. Every person can come. So let's respond to the Lord this morning and the message of his gospel that goes out to people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all backgrounds, all levels of sin. Today here he invites us to come to his presence to respond to him. Let's do so this morning.